Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Jody Vance in for Roy once more. Today's show, the new Green Party leader was announced. Her name is Anami Paul, and she spoke with us. You don't want to miss it. Back to school in Denmark was a big part of the program as well. It seems to be working well. And why is that? Shane Woodford checks in. A freelance journalist living in Denmark has some of those answers. A man known as Darth Radar joins us to talk about Canada's worst driving habits and shed some light on what's going on out there. And a palliative care physician who got famous on TikTok is keeping young people informed about COVID. Dr. Nahid Dosani is must-hear radio. It's all coming up on the Roy Green Show podcast. So after a year-long race, the Green Party of Canada did vote in a new leader at the convention in Ottawa, in the eighth round of voting, in fact. And Anami Paul was elected to the role. Anami Paul joins us now live on the line. Welcome and congratulations to you. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. I wonder how many interviews you have done, because I believe I have been watching <laughs> you since last night. <laughs> Uh, you can probably hear it a bit in my voice. <laughs> it's been quite a few, but I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. This is exactly, I think, what our members were hoping for. You know, it's a moment of renewal. It's a moment of renewed interest. And so I'm definitely going to uh, do all I can to make the most of it until I collapse. There you go. Well, <laughs> enemy, if we may, can we get personal off the top here? What did it actually mean to you in that moment that we witnessed you stand up and turn around and realize that all of the hard work of your team and your hard work uh, personally uh, put you in this incredible role. I, you know, my, my heart was was just full, and it was full because uh, it, it this this was this was not me. This was a group of people from all across the country and all different uh, walks of life who came together for a long time uh, to work on something that had never been done before. And so to, to see people do that and to see it, it, it pay off um, is, is very inspirational. Uh, and, and I will always be profound, profoundly grateful to, to everyone. Um, and so I was thinking that I wish everyone uh, who had worked so hard could be with me. And it was a bittersweet moment because we have a pandemic. And it meant that most of the team, most of the people who had given up every weekend for nine months to work on the campaign um, couldn't physically be there to celebrate uh, what they had accomplished uh, for us. I think that was one of my favorite parts, a bittersweet part of of your speech, was when you held up your phone and said, this is where my other son is. Yeah, yeah. And my mom, you know, my mm. mother as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned her because I, I had to, but this is, you know, my mother's 84. And to, to see this moment and to see something uh, like this that, that had never happened before and not to be physically with her, um, because of the pandemic, uh, because of her age was, you know, it was very, very, uh, difficult. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we experienced this as a family and that she, she's sure to see it. But at the same time, it was, it was tough not to be with her. What was that phone call like with your mom? Uh, just, you know, my, <laughs> my mm. mother's an extraordinary person. And so her reaction was just, you know, she said, yeah, yeah, congratulations. Go work. <laughs> Ah. <laughs> <laughs> go work, you know. She really, she, uh, yeah. She says, like, "Go work, you got, you know, you got other things to do." Um, so she's happy, and then she also said, "You know, my friends are calling me." 
<laughs> right. I'm busy. Uh, Go work. I'm busy. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they're calling to congratulate me. You know, I got to free up the line. <laughs> So, We're with Green Party yeah. leader Anami Paul. I love saying that out loud for you after seeing your smiling face. So I always love to see a strong woman succeed, politics aside. Uh, that is a yes. piece of this for sure. Uh, but yes. being a moderate, being being uh, highly educated, you as you said, most people can understand my French because my mother raised us to be bilingual. And, and the, the, mm-hmm. some of the little bits that you dropped into your speech uh, last night really resonate. Um, and, and how wide-ranging ranging, excuse me, your message is, because some might assume that, oh, Greens, it's all about climate. It's more than just mm-hmm. climate. It no, is climate, but right. it's more. It is, it is, it's climate because it's about people. So you're absolutely yeah. right. It is more than climate. It's what it is, is people. You know, our focus is on that. Our focus is on, uh, you know, creating a world that uh, allows us all to live in dignity um, and security. And so, of course, we're talking about the climate because we can't live in security while we have that existential threat. But we also have to talk and we have been uh, talking about all of the social policies that accomplish the same goal. And so, yeah. you know, this is, this, it was very important for me to, to underline that, you know, especially at this time when so many of the policies we've been talking about are really proving themselves to have been important. Um, so, yes, no, we, we are, we're, it's about people and everything else flows from that. So it's pharmacare, it's long-term care, it's uh, multi-dimensional policies is what I was hearing from you. Interesting, though, and and I want to make sure that we get to this because you are headed straight into a by-election October 26th for Toronto Centre, and uh, Bill Moore knows former riding. Um, But unlike others who may have run in or will be running against you, you actually grew up there. Well, I was born there. I grew up very close to there, but uh, I didn't grow up there. Um, I was born there. My mother uh, taught in the schools in uh, That's Toronto what it Center. was, your mom. My, yeah. Exactly, my mom and my grandma as well. My grandma, you know, she's exactly the kind of person that we're celebrating at this moment. She was a frontline worker in the hospital. She was a nurse's aide. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, Toronto Center, it's been, for, it's been there for me at many different stages of my life. And I just you know, as tough as it is, and as long as it's been held by the Liberals, I just refuse to um, abandon the people there to the fate, uh, you know, that they have been suffering under uh, for all these years without at least giving them a strong green option. And this was a commitment I made even before I won the race. So um, I'm proud to represent the Greens there again. And I'm inviting every person in Canada, wherever you are, if you feel like this, you know, it's time to support your neighbors and help them get real representation to uh, contact us and, and help us win that seat. Green Party of Canada leader Anna Mee Paul, what is it about your professional trajectory that brought you to even aspiring to this role? Politics is difficult and not for everyone. <laughs> Why did you do you know, this? Yeah, my- <laughs> Well, you know, I think the running theme of our conversation is going to be my mother and my grandmother. Because they, you know, they both came from this tiny, tiny island in the Caribbean, 9,000 people, where you learn from the very beginning that if you want to get anything done at all, um, you have to count on your neighbors and they have to count on you. And so any positive change... Uh, has to be done collectively. And so for me, uh, that's, that's the way they raised me. I've understood that my whole life. And given these, these huge and unprecedented challenges we're facing, I know we have to do it together. 
And I believe that, uh, that, you know, helping to lead the Green Party at this time was the best thing that I could, could do, you know, to create that positive change along with other people that really want to do that as well. I saved this for the end because uh, in most of the interviews that I heard you do, the intro included race and religion and gender. Um, Can you speak to those three pieces? Because first and foremost, you're Anime Paul, uh, but you are all of those other things that people are saying, the first, the first, the first. Yes. Well, thank you so much for acknowledging that. And it is, it's very important for, uh, for, uh, people like me, women like me with backgrounds like mine to uh, feel that people see us in three dimensions. And that includes all of our professional experience, our education, everything else that we bring to the table. Um, but it's no question that, you know, I, I am the first um, black person to be elected to lead a, um, a federal party. I'm the first um, uh, Jewish woman uh, to lead a federal party. I'm the first woman of color to lead a federal party. And it's just a shame, I've said this before, that all of those things uh, are still first in 2020. Um, so I just hope it's going to be a lot easier for the next person that thinks of it. And uh, it was a very touching moment last night when two of the members of our team, two of the volunteers in their 20s, uh, two young women, they turned to me and, and with just tears in their eyes, it was very emotional and said, um, I feel like it's possible now for me. And uh, that was, you know, I don't have the words to describe how that feels, but it was, it's, um, it was wonderful. It was just, it was just an extraordinary moment. Look around you at your feet, see all that shattered glass and understand how many people are applauding that. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. And I hope you'll invite me back. You bet. What a pleasure. That is, that is the new Green Party of Canada leader. Anami Paul, know her name, and best of luck in your upcoming by-election. Thank you for doing this. I'm a mom. Mine went to high school for the first time at 12 years old in a pandemic. Stressful, right? Everybody wants our kids to be safe, our teachers to be safe. It's been a complex and turbulent time, to say the least. Resilient children, though, right? I'm absolutely shocked and relieved at how the kids that are in my particular public school universe (laughs) seem to be adapting here. So it all depends on the community spread, right? What city you're in, what town you're in, the stress level kind of ebbs and flows with that community spread level. So in general, Canada's doing quite well. But what we might learn from elsewhere is a big piece of this next segment or next couple of segments here. Lots of intel coming from Denmark on this topic. We have a good friend who is in Denmark, and we're going to take you there now live, connecting with good friend and freelance journalist Shane Woodford. Shane, good to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Always glad to talk to you, Jody. Great to hear your voice. I should be saying like, tak mung tak. Telegdansk. That's from my. That's from my Danish grandmother. It's all I know. I just said I don't really speak a lot of Danish. <laughs> what is Denmark doing so well, Shane, with regard to the back to school? I read your Twitter. I follow along with all of your updates. I thank you for them. Uh, really, though, fascinated with the school piece here. Can you give us the lay of the land for our listener? Yeah, uh, we'd have to go back to the spring. Denmark, of course, uh, instituted. Uh, was one of the first countries in Europe to institute a pretty major lockdown. They closed the borders. 
Uh, they instituted all uh, all businesses to close down. Uh, the public service was sent home to work from home. Uh, schools were closed. The whole enchilada. And that lasted for about a month, month and a half. And then in the spring, they decided to send kids back to school. In Denmark, they decided to go with uh, daycare through to grade five. At that time, the thought line was that it was younger kids who weren't uh, seeming to get COVID, uh, they had a higher chance of surviving the disease, that kind of thing. Uh, so they decided to kind of dip the toe in the water that way. Uh, they went back to school with two meters social distancing, a host of cleaning regulations, um, and a lot of nervousness, as you uh, mentioned off the top there, Jody. People here in Denmark were, you have to remember the time, Italy was uh, a disaster. Um, yeah. COVID was, and still is a large degree, but I mean, here in Europe, COVID was uh, top of mind for everybody. Uh, it was the biggest kind of danger point in their everyday lives. And there were a lot of parents here who were extremely concerned that their kids were being used as, um, <laughs> the Danish term was actually test rabbit. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but they were, yeah, they were concerned their kids were kind of, you know, being used as sort of a, a chess piece in some way uh, yeah. as we kind of figured this whole thing out. So the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Uh, Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally, exactly. Uh, parents created Facebook groups. Uh, I know there were thousands of parents that were going on to these groups every day. They were growing like wildfire. Uh, people were scared. And, you know, in every way, shape, and form, rightfully so. Uh, any parent would be. Um, but what happened here is they went back to school. They had some really stringent guidelines, as I mentioned, two-meter social distancing. Uh, there was a hand wash station set up for parents outside the schools. So that everybody, kid, uh, child, and parent would wash their hands going uh, going into the school ground. Uh, to this day, we're still not allowed inside school buildings. Um, kids were spread out. Things were cleaned with reckless abandon. And what happened is we saw the end of last school year is essentially nothing. Cases in Denmark continued to decline, decline, decline. There was no major school-related situation. And the nation took a deep breath. And then we had the summer off, and we're back to school now. Now... Some of the restrictions have changed or dropped off entirely. Now it's one meter social distancing, uh, which, you know, honestly, Jody is, I don't know, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a red herring in a way because the kids still play together and they, they right. pal around before school and after school, right? So yeah, um, we're, we're still not inside the schools, and the cleanliness thing is just, I mean, they are cleaning schools like you would not believe. Is there cohorts within these classes? Are the are the kids staying in their respective bubbles when they're in a class, like the 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 working group or the the cohort group? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not so much cohorts here, but the classes are kept entirely to themselves. So, gotcha. Um, if you're in a class, you're not you know fraternizing with the class next door. Um, in some ways, it's been very problematic in a Danish context because. Schools here are designed as much for education as they are for creating friendships and social interactions and social webs. So, you know, for example, they often have upper and lower class mentorships. They have team building exercises among the different classes, that kind of thing. And it's part of sort of intrinsically Danish culture. So there's been a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, having the children being restricted to one class and losing that social component. But uh, for kind of trying to prevent any major COVID spread, you know, if a, if a child should become COVID positive, 
uh, they've really, really stuck to that. So they, so much so, in fact, Jody, that in my son's school, there's chalk lines on the sidewalk in front of each class so the kids won't stray across uh, and play with kids in their class next to them. So they take that pretty seriously. And it's not so much a cohort, but the classes do stick together. All right. So uh, we're speaking with Shane Woodford, who's a freelance journalist uh, in the EU. He, you can follow him on Twitter. I highly recommend that you follow Shane Woodford on Twitter. It's Woodford in DK at Woodford in DK W O O D F O R D. Um, you likely are familiar with Shane Woodford if you're a regular listener um, at, in Canadian media. Because you, how long have you been in Denmark now, Shane? Uh, we made the move last June, so we had about six months of, uh, well, we're in Europe, and then a global pandemic took right. to shine <laughs> off that pretty quick. <laughs> when you were saying about back to school, it happened fairly quickly, early days yep. in the springtime of this pandemic where the Danes went back to school. Then there was the pause for a summer vacation-ish, and then back to school yep. again. What didn't open up? What was different in Denmark when it came to sort of a reopening after being on that significant lockdown? Well, the one thing that still hasn't opened up are nightclubs uh, and dance clubs here. They were closed in March, and they have yet to open. I have serious doubts that they'll open at all this year. Technically, that decision will be reassessed uh, at the end of October. But right uh, right now, people are, and I think rightfully so, a little bit leery about jamming a bunch of people inside and adding alcohol and that kind of thing and during a global pandemic. Uh, we had... Um, uh, you know, fitness rooms, fitness clubs, that kind of thing took a long time to reopen. Restaurants were a very gradual reopen here. They went to uh, sort of a takeout model first, and then, you know, a socially distancing responsible inside setting came much later. They're more or less back, but they have to abide by uh, social distancing and uh, legally put out how many, you know, what their capacity is. A uh, new thing on the restaurant front here as of about two weeks ago is that you're now required to wear a mask in a restaurant uh, if you're standing or if you're moving. So if I get up from the table, for example, to go to the bathroom, then i got to get on a mask to do that. Masks, by the way, in Denmark uh, were largely invisible until about a month ago. They're, they're sort of a, a new thing here. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I could, uh, up till about a month ago, Jody, I probably could have counted on one hand uh, the amount of people I've seen wearing a mask in Denmark. And then and how about now? We saw, uh, yeah, well, now it's starting to come back big time or starting to be yeah. introduced big time, I should say. Uh, the reason for that is over the last month, we've seen, uh, first it was an infection surge in Aarhus, which is Denmark's second largest city. Uh, and they initiated some mask precautions there that first started locally and then became national. And that was that you're required to wear a mask in all public transit, so buses, ferries, trains, that kind of thing, and then uh, the infection surge died down for a week and then has flared back up across the country uh, over the last month or so, and now, uh, again, there were local restrictions first to outbreak municipalities, uh, and then they were enacted nationally, so that was the mandate to wear masks in restaurants and that kind of thing. You see them in, um, you know, like uh, um, amusement parks, too, as well as a way to combat you know, or try to combat uh, the spread of COVID when you're on rides and that kind of thing. But I see more and more Danes now wearing masks, although it's not mandated absolutely everywhere as it is in some other places. I have very fond childhood memories of Tivoli Gardens. I can only imagine what that would be like with everybody wearing masks. It would be so <laughs> yeah. odd. So yeah, odd. They make, you, uh, they, make you, they make you wear masks on the roller coaster there. I was there a couple of weeks ago. 
That is quite something. Like, can we? Can I pick your brain a little bit about what I see on your Twitter feed when you are talking about yep. neighboring countries? Certainly, a lot of people, mm-hmm. particularly those who are like, our economics here are so brutal, and how our governments handled it. We should be more like Sweden. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what being like Sweden looks like? Yeah, uh, you don't want to be like Sweden. Um, so they essentially did a lot of nothing at first. What they did was base their entire COVID, um, instead of going a lockdown, they essentially listed a bunch of suggestions and then left it up for people to decide whether they wanted to do that or not. And what that meant is they didn't ever shut down really the way that a lot of other countries did. So schools kept on going, bars and restaurants kept on going, people were shopping. Uh, it was just like, um, you know, I had friends in Stockholm and friends in Malmo uh, who I would stay in touch with, and they would just send me pictures and stuff about, you know, we're we're in a total, total lockdown here in, in Denmark and fearing the invisible enemy of COVID. And, you know, you see, you know, uh, kids out playing soccer and all that kind of, and the shopping malls are packed in Sweden, that kind of thing. So um, they saw currently there uh, nine times, as many COVID deaths in Sweden as Denmark, and more than double that of, of Finland, Norway, and Denmark combined. They've had astronomically higher cases as well. Um, their strategy, in my opinion, has been a mess. Um, they actually apologized. The prime minister, the health officials, and the head epidemiologist had to apologize because an overproportionate amount of seniors in Sweden uh, succumb to COVID. And right. They said, and this is where I think, I really think that it was the, the most obvious point where their strategy had fallen to pieces and they weren't willing to accept it, where they said, listen, sorry, we've lost all these old people. That's on us. The strategy clearly failed them, their words, um, but the strategy is still working. And at that time, if you're not protecting the single most vulnerable population to the disease, then my suggestion is your strategy is not working very flawed still sticking tight with that and their their first wave sort of came down just over the last three weeks or so or sorry the three weeks leading into september and then in september till now jody their cases are once again starting to rise so their goal was herd immunity, right? And there's no guarantee of herd immunity with COVID-19 at this point. We don't know how long antibodies... Well, yeah. They, they at one point, they wouldn't say whether their goal was herd immunity. The, the closest they got to it, um, Honors Tynell, who's the head epidemiologist, kind of made some obscure reference to like, well, it could be a good side effect of our strategy. Um, mm. That said, at one point... <laughs> In the summer, the Swedish Public Health Agency, Jody, held a press conference where they announced that Stockholm would reach herd immunity within the next two weeks. And everyone opened up this report, including myself. We looked at the numbers and started crunching the numbers. And one of the more than one of the reporters in the press conference said, listen, this doesn't this math doesn't add up. Uh, and they hummed and hawed about it. And what happened is about two hours after the press conference, the public health agency actually had to retract that report right. and redo their math and then reissue it. And today, Jody, the, if you look at the numbers, Stockholm, never mind Sweden itself, but Stockholm itself is nowhere near herd immunity. And herd immunity comes at the cost of, you know, basically the virus burns the population and leaves thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people dead. And that's how you get herd immunity. 
It's quite something. I only got two minutes to go here with you, Shane. I could talk to you all day. I have so many questions for you. What is the view from where you are in Denmark of seeing the president of the United States in hospital diagnosed test case positive? Yeah. Uh, well, people here have a fairly dim view of Donald Trump. He has a bit of a history with Denmark. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but he, uh, about six or so months ago, made this offhand comment in a press conference that he was looking forward to visiting Denmark, which came as a huge shock to this country. No one had brought it up, and then they spent uh, millions of Danish kroner preparing for this state visit, and then he said, I want to buy Greenland. Denmark said, yeah, and that's not happening, and then he canceled right. the visit. So it cost the country a lot of money, and people all over the political spectrum were, were very unhappy with him. Outside the United States, I'm sure in Canada and everywhere else, People here are just shaking their head. I mean, they are baffled looking at uh, a president who has worked so hard to undermine the system, call COVID a Democrat hoax, you know, tout the benefits of hydrochloroquine, which is clearly not a beneficial drug. I mean, right now he's taking Remsvidir. Yeah. I don't know hydrochloroquine anywhere on his medical charts that I can tell. Um, people are just baffled that he would behave the way he did when everyone else that has a head on their shoulders is wearing a mask, is trying to social distance and do all the common sense things as people all over the world die every day in the thousands. It just, it makes no sense whatsoever his particular course of action. Who doesn't have a story of seeing crazy drivers? crazy, dangerous, distracted, just nut, nutty things behind the wheels, scary stuff, what happens. There's a new survey actually out, <laughs> a national survey of Canadian drivers that came out this week that found very concerning numbers of drivers are actually admitting to all sorts of dangerous driving habits. It's crazy, the numbers. Estimated at 19.1 million adults, 63% of Canadians admit admit to dangerous driving, which means that number is even higher. Oh man, six in 10 uh, appear to be sort of, you know, okay, yeah, you know, sometimes I might forget to turn my turn signal on. That's dangerous. There, there are so many pieces of the driving puzzle that I think we've gotten complacent in. Hear stories of, of self-driving vehicles with people behind the wheel sleeping on highways. What is going on? Uh, somebody who certainly knows these stories all too well is our next guest. Uh, Grant, I hope I'm getting your last name right. Gotkatru? Grant, is oh, that? Uh, okay, Gotkatru. Okay, Grant, got, but I'm going to call you Darth Radar because that's your moniker and I think that's super cool. Now, you're a former police corporal who worked in traffic enforcement, but now you're a forensic consultant. Is that right for traffic cases in court? That's right. That's right. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine the stories you have to tell. Of course, yes, yes, and thanks for having me. Yeah, I retired uh, after almost 28 years on the job, so I uh, retired in 2017. So, um, yeah, so I started in 89, so I watched, uh, obviously, <laughs> the the lunacy on the road in the lower mainland was uh, was impressive, and it's gotten worse, as far as I'm concerned, over the last uh, few, last few decades. Yeah, with the with the smartphones in our hands and the distraction of that. When you say Lower Mainland, are you talking about BC? Because we're we're coast to coast on the Roy Green oh, Show here. So I just want to yeah. I want to point out to the national audience that and and as a born and raised Vancouverite, I can attest to the fact that Vancouver has the world's worst drivers. 
Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it's, it's just, awful. Yeah, British Columbia. Yeah, right. That, right down in Vancouver and all the suburbs around all of you know, the valley. Uh, atrocious is is the best way uh, to put it. And uh, I, I, you know, there's there's no uh, limit to the idiocy on the road. And I'm sure it's well, like you said in your survey, or the survey that was was done. It's it's clearly right across Canada. I suspect most of the the the, the survey dealt with more of the the major the major hubs as opposed to some of the rural jurisdictions. I find right. rural jurisdictions people tend to be a lot more oh calm, relaxed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, especially when you think of places of Vancouver, which where does Vancouver and the lower mainland rank in the world when it comes to uh, traffic congestion? It's always way up there, right? Yeah, it's always way up there. Honestly, I lived in Ontario for 10 years and and Ontario drivers, and I've I've driven in Montreal as well. So I've done Toronto, I've done Montreal. So the speed changes in other places and spaces and I get comfortable sort of adapting to the various sort of, um, you know, weather conditions and what have you. But there's something about driving down a road in Vancouver where somebody is driving in the left lane and without signaling decides to cross two lanes of traffic and turn right. It's just, you you catch yourself wondering if you just actually saw what you actually saw. Let's talk about some of the bad habits that you've seen, because the number one bad habit with 49% of respondents in this, uh, in this national survey that came out, 49% of respondents admit to doing the number one bad habit, which is not texting at a red light. It's actually eating while driving. Yes, we all do it. <laughs> it's dangerous, right? Or drink yeah. coffee while they're, while they're driving. And it's, it's, it's something that does require the ability to multitask and we don't think of it as breaking the law. But if you get into a collision because you're eating, then you can face some serious um, potential uh, charges in court, even criminal uh, really? criminal negligence uh, causing death or serious injury. Uh, if you're eating and you drop something on your lap and you you know, you look down to pick it up and then you thunder into somebody and you, you kill them or you seriously injure them. You're looking at a criminal charge. Wow. But there's no Motor Vehicle Act charge for distracted driving, uh, which there should be. That way yeah. you can, that way the police can write the ticket for the person who's putting their makeup on or shaving while they're driving, which I've seen, or reading a newspaper. Or, you know, we, we think of distracted driving as only the use of a cell phone, but there's so many other things that distract. A hundred percent. I, you know what I never, in looking at the list of the next bad habits, I mean, there's some of them are fairly obvious. Obviously speeding is, is, yep. a, is, is a big one. Uh, forgetting yep. to signal that drives everybody crazy driving while tired, like the micro sleeping. I'm not even sure what micro sleeping is, but I was kind of surprised yep. that smoking is considered distracted driving. Well, um, well, not as many people are smoking, certainly not compared to our parents' generation. So No, certainly not. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but the other thing that drives people up the wall are those people that sit in the left lane mm-hmm. doing the speed limit, and, and they won't get into the right lane. And, and, and again, for your viewers, and I'm, I'm sure some of them on the East Coast would know this, in, in the lower mainland on Highway 1 from Vancouver to Chilliwack, you will get the left lane hogs. But the second you get east and you get from Hope and you start heading towards the Coquihalla, everyone knows to get into the right lane. So it seems to be in the, in the um, higher concentration areas where there's more traffic, the bigger cities, 
people yeah. just turn their brains off and they go, well, I'm going to just do, uh, I'm going to sit in the left lane here and I'm going to uh, hold up everyone behind me because I'm doing the speed limit. Right. I'm going to teach them a lesson because they're going too fast. Those people oh, really? that tap their brakes and, and want to go extra well, and, slow and teach yeah, you a lesson. It it's just like road rage. That's right, that's right. And it drives people up the wall. And I think that's why there is so much aggressive driving in major yeah. cities is because too many cars, too much congestion, and too many stupid drivers who just are absolutely inconsiderate to everyone else on the road. So they're going to do whatever they want. They're going to either do the speed limit in the left lane or they're going to not use a turn signal or they're going to go, oh, I have to turn on this road. I don't want to go out on the next one. So I'm going to leap across all the lanes of traffic because I'm most important right now than everyone else on the road. It's really inconsiderate. And it comes from everyone just being so stressed driving in such congested areas. I have, my question for you really has to come with regard to the police force. As you said, you started in 89 and you, you saw the evolution. I mean, cars have changed exponentially, as have yes. the distractions that come into play. Are police forces yes. better at policing these behaviors than before? Well, we do what we can. I think that uh, in most uh, police departments, the traffic sections are not fully resourced as they should be. There's not enough emphasis put on traffic enforcement. Uh, the number one problem that, you know, that the, the citizens complain about in their town, the top three is always traffic, traffic, traffic. Not enough resources are put into traffic. So the officers are doing the best they can with the limited resources they can. Um, when, when I was in West Vancouver, uh, when I was the corporal uh, in traffic there, I kept losing my guys to other sections because the other sections were short on resources. So Mm. suddenly it was down to me and one other member. Well, how can two members um, properly conduct traffic enforcement in a city like West Vancouver? So that's the first place that you lose members to other sections in the police department. They're, They're doing the best they can with limited resources. Michael in Toronto, you're up first. What's your story? Okay, hey Jody, what I was going to say, the hard part has really been about sharing the road uh, with other traffic users, especially here in Toronto with cyclists. I've seen them do all sorts of things like running through red lights, weaving Mm -hmm. in and out of live traffic, going on the road, onto the sidewalk, back on the road, and especially not even wearing helmets though. And so it's been really hard in that way, some of that behavior I've seen. You know what, Michael, that's a really good point. What do you think about that, Grant? The, the cyclist that wants to be a vehicle only when they decide they don't and then they want to be a pedestrian. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually one of those rare officers that would give a ticket to a cyclist if mm. they committed an infraction like a stop sign or a red light. I even gave two uh, uh, for speeding, and one was in a school zone and one was in a playground zone because it's the, the rules of the road are the same for them there. You know, they have to obey the law just like everyone else, not when they pick and choose. Mm-hmm. The caller is right. Interesting. Thank you for that, Michael. Let's go to Manitoba to Onanol. Is that where you are, Donald? Onanol? Onanol. Onanol. Yes. Um, I have um, driven a lot of highway miles, and um, any, I've been on the highway a lot of close, well, I guess over the years, it gets over 1 million miles. Highway driving, wow. I know what I'm talking about. That the number one, well, um, not just on the highway, but in the cities as well, in any, any major city, lack of patience, 
No yeah. one has any patience. They want to get going. Get out of the way, you know. Yeah. And they rush the hell like, like crazy. They get to a red light and they sit there. And uh, you, you you drive out 50 kilometers and you go up and wave at them. And you they're not going to get any faster than you are. But uh, on the highway, you can just pick out the people from the, from the cities. They don't. They drive the same in the city as they, they on the highways they do in the city. They they drive bumper to bumper and doesn't matter conditions of the road. They even uh, the ICIC conditions. Uh, you hear, uh, for example, around Winnipeg, they got. Uh, Three, four car pops. Well, that's what it is. They're all driving bumper to bumper back. There's no, mm-hmm. don't leave enough space between them. Yeah. Every, uh, every, uh, well, say for example, they're driving 60 kilometers, or should be driving six, leave six, well, six car lanes between you. Between you. But they don't, and they just take chances that are shouldn't. Amen, Donald. We are hearing you loud and clear. You know what, uh, Grant? I couldn't agree more. What I see with when people are cutting in front of a semi, yeah. you know, and, and leaving themselves like maybe two feet in traffic, that semi cannot stop. The reason why there's space in front of that semi truck is so that they have room to stop and not hit what's in front of them. Well, those types of videos are all over the YouTube. Yeah. <clears throat> it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, a million and, and kilometers. He said a million kilometers he's driven in his life. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. That's that, yeah, but he's spot on when he says that there's there's everyone's so aggressive, there's no inconsider there's no consideration, everyone's in a hurry to go somewhere. Yeah, just slow down. You know, don't be rude. Right? Don't be rude. And don't be in a race to get somewhere. It, you know, your day could get remarkably different in a split second in that rush that you are to that red light. Dave in Calgary, welcome to the Roy Green Show. Thanks for holding on the line there. What do you, hey. What's your story? How are you doing? Good. How are you? Hey, why do you take credit for the worst drivers in Canada? Try Calgary. <laughs> okay, we can hey, share. And we can share. Operator. <laughs> you know what the problem is? The problem is people really don't understand driving. Driving is the one activity many people do that they could die that day. Yeah. Everything else you do, you go shopping, do this, do that. Driving is you get killed in a split minute. So what does that mean? It means it takes your full concentration. I spend 10 to 12 hours a day behind the wheel for the last 20 years as a courier. Yeah. Now, you've seen right it all. way to fix it like Darth Vader said, the resources aren't put in. Why are policemen doing anything for robbery, kidnapping, break-in, and traffic? Why don't we just have one government branch that is traffic and traffic only? Train people, get them on the road. The income they generate from fines and dumb drivers will pay for it. But the other cost is less insurance, less injuries, less hospital. It's a ripple effect. How do you fix it? Because I'm an analyst. Is they, people drive every time they get two or three points for a certain infraction. When you hit a certain number, back to driving school and a fine. Right. Guess what? When someone's at 12 points and he knows at 15, he's going to go to driving school and fine. He might smarten up. Maybe. Everything what do you think of that, Grant? Do you think do you think that would help? More points, more driving school, more more repercussions to more than just a ticket. I don't think there's much that can uh, improve. We're dealing with. People that are just so self-centered, they don't mm. really care. You know, uh, high, they've, they've raised the fines. Some provinces have really high fines for certain. Uh, it, 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 it would affect people like you and myself, but those people out there that just don't care, they're going to do it 
regardless. It has to start at the very beginning, at the very beginning, which is when you obtain your driver's license, it should be extremely difficult. In British Columbia, and I've said this for years, um, it's far too easy to get a driver's license in British Columbia. Hmm. Um, and I've also said uh, that the driving age should be raised to 18. You can't vote, you can't drive as far as I'm concerned because you're just a kid, right? And now, of course, every time someone like myself brings that up, the first thing the, the, the news does is they go to the local high school to get the opinion of the teenager. What do you guys think of that? <laughs> they're oh, mad at you. Yeah. 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 They're so, so mad at you. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, so you're right, Doctor. Right 16-year-old dying to get his license. They, they'll hate the government that changes the rules. Yeah. But you're no, right. You. you know, one thing I do understand, okay, is you can't fix stupidity. I, I didn't tell you any stories that I've seen, but the <clears> stuff <throat> that I see is unbelievable. Even when I'm parked eating my lunch yeah. in a shopping yeah. mall, Someone drove straight into my vehicle. Figure that one out. I'm parked. The bulk of the new COVID-19 test case positive numbers in Canada, as you likely have heard, are identified as the sort of 20 to 40-year-old set. We've been hearing the frustration of health officials and leaders alike. Actually, you might recall this moment from Ontario Premier Doug Ford's presser. Have a listen. I just have a message for the young people. Don't just don't go to a party. Simple, because it's it might not be you, but it's going to be your parents or your grandparents, as I always say, or your neighbors or your friends or relatives. You're you're hurting people by doing this. And go back to the golden rule: wear a mask. If you don't have a mask. Keep six feet. Now, unfortunately, pleas such as this are simply, well, literally, not being heard. So to talk more about this, we welcome Dr. Nahid Dasani, who most of us know as a palliative care physician, but young people, they know him from TikTok. Welcome, Dr. Dasani. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on the show. I've been watching your videos and you're fantastic. You are what we need <laughs> to reach the, the young people who really aren't you know, uh, throwing caution to the wind in in the face of a pandemic sort of purposefully, it's the fact that where all of this information is being shared is just simply not where they go to get information. Isn't that right? Well, I really appreciate that. I never really thought um, that the reach of utilizing platforms like TikTok and Instagram would be so effective. I started out on these platforms to provide palliative care education. And, and when the pandemic hit, I shifted to really focus on education around COVID and public health messaging. And it's been so amazing to see, but you're absolutely right. People who are under 40 are not watching the press conferences in the middle of the day. They're often working or in school. And then messages just not resonating with them as well. And then I'm sure hearing it from their parents or other authorities that are often barking orders as to what they should or should not do with their lives. I mean, we've all been 20 something, <laughs> right? Yep. Absolutely. And often the tone has been one of blaming and shaming. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that just doesn't resonate with people under 40. People who I talk to are under 40 tell me, we really care about the pandemic. We don't want the virus to spread. It's just the message isn't meeting people where they are at. And by um, thinking about the messaging, the tone, uh, we might be able to better reach them. We need messaging that is positive, that is engaging and innovative and is given to people in the way that they consume media. Okay, so can you explain TikTok to somebody who has no idea what TikTok is other than a talking point from the U.S. president versus China? 
Yeah, fair enough. So imagine um, a platform that basically you can swipe up and down. It's short videos, so much shorter than YouTube. It's kind of like Instagram because it's visual and there's text boxes and there's music, but there's a real creative, innovative sense because there's trends as well that you can jump on um, and musical trends and video trends. And you can send very complex, nuanced messages in a short amount of time, like 10, 15 seconds, really innovative. And you can really hammer home messages uh, through the platform. So give us an idea of what your engagement experience has been. I mean, are, are, are young people on TikTok engaged first and foremost in, in your messaging about palliative care and then a pandemic? I mean, those are heady subject matters that many sort of the older set would probably go, oh, kids won't care about that. Yeah, and I was wondering about that too, but it's actually quite the opposite. My first mm. few palliative care videos had over 100,000 uh, views, some of them. Some of them have reached over 200,000 views as well on topics like palliative care, what it's like to support someone who's going to a hospice, advanced care planning. And then more recently, when I switched to topics around the pandemic, what I saw very similar engagement and growth. I've done videos um, that have talked about the importance of in infection control control strategies, why physical distancing is important, updates from Health Canada. And when people were talking about how they shouldn't shake hands, I did a video about like six ways you can greet each other without actually touching each other or actually performing a handshake, which was kind of funny as well. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny how these topics are so heavy, but through humor, through, through um, creativity and, 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 and the, using the platform for what it has to offer, we can really send these messages messages home. So therein lies a secret here, Dr. Dasani, is that when you said humor, in, in digging deeper into the entertainment piece, entertainment and education are hand in hand for kids that have grown up kids, young people, or the 20 to 40 set, whatever you want to call them. I, I hesitated at labeling a generation, whether millennial or wh whatever generation, but sort of the age group that are looking for that humor piece and somebody who might be an older person who is more um, stayed in the way it's always been. You don't consume your news with a chuckle. And but the ad here is why not? If you're getting the information across and it's being absorbed, then why not have there be humor associated with palliative care or a pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, you know this better than I do. Um, you know, we have a large audience out there and the media is designed, has, has been designed to deliver messages in nuanced ways, depending on the demographic, the topic, the messenger, for example. And if that's the case, then why around COVID-19 have we basically had a one-size-fits-all communications approach? We need to be thinking about the age group, the audience. We need to be thinking about health literacy, language, culture, race, um, technology, the platforms and be leveraging each of these different in, in different domains to the best of our ability so that we can send these messages where they need to be in a timely fashion and change public health behaviors around COVID-19. And you'd know firsthand, you're, you're a physician, for goodness sake, you're Dr. Nahid Dasani, you're a palliative care physician. You have had to sit in lecture halls and consume mass quantities of information. And you also can pivot to TikTok and know that I can only really do, what, six, 12, 15 seconds at a time, maybe 30 at the outside 
because kids just aren't watching. Young people are just not sitting down and and taking in a one hour health officials press briefing on the daily. Totally. You know, I know that these press conferences have has to happen. And I mm. do um, give credit to my colleagues who are working night and day in public health and in government to do what they can around the pandemic. But maybe on top of that, we need to think about shorter message that are, messages that are concise, that are consistent, that are clear, and also creative so that we mm-hmm. can drive the message home. How did you start um, in terms of the information that you shared? Was it as simple as, as the wash hands and physically distance and, and keep your bubble tight? Well, I mean, the messaging is important, but it's also the method and the technique. There was a trend Mm -hmm. um, earlier on this year that had to do with a song. It was like an electronic dance music song that had to do with snapping. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people were using um, text bubbles every time the the song requested a snap. So I, you know, instead of making it something about fashion or or music, I made it about COVID. And that video got over 100,000 views. And it was literally titled How to Prevent Coronavirus via Public Health Canada. Um, Then when there was like discussion around um, anti-racism, and the, and this was very much in the discourse, I took a, the Nickelodeon um, sound, which was also trending, and I said, please wash your hands, don't be racist. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, that also did really well. Um, yeah. And you can also use humor. People were also hoarding toilet paper, and there was a trend where you fill water into uh, glass jars. And I, and I said, what matters during the coronavirus outbreak? And I filled no water in hoarding toilet paper. And I filled a lot of water in physical distancing. Ah, oh, see? I see what you did there. You make people think and you give them a little something, a little nugget. That's what I, I actually watched your TikTok video with the with the bubbles. And I just think it's absolutely brilliant. Clearly, you're a brilliant human and somebody who is definitely concerned and, and caring for the community as a palliative care doctor. I'd be remiss if we didn't have a little bit of a conversation about how you are very much a frontline worker here. Right, um, right. Being in palliative care in a pandemic means that you have treated COVID-19 patients at the end of life. Um, you know, it's it's a tough conversation to have, but I think it's important that we understand how, how that serves our community and impacts you and really impacts your family. Yeah, absolutely. I can remember early on in the pandemic, waking up and um, getting ready for work and waking my wife up and saying, you know, like I'm going to work and I may not see you again because we didn't know what this really meant working in a hospital and working on the front lines. And, 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 uh, you know, I, I constantly think back to that moment because being a frontline worker, there are a lot of people who have put a lot of, put their lives on the line and are not seeing their families. They're not seeing their children. Um, and, and, and not to mention the people we care for, what they're going through as a palliative care doctor, I treat people with serious diseases in hospital and in the community. Um, and can you imagine what it's like to be in a hospital dealing with a serious illness, COVID or not, and your family can't be there due to visitor restrictions, that you can't see your nurse or doctor's face or smile because they're wearing PPE, you know, the healing touch. Like there are so many parts of the psychosocial supports and that we normally take for granted that are just not happening in the same way during this time. It's been very, very challenging that way. Well, I thank you for your service, honestly. Like, it's just, I I have a very 
teeny tiny sliver of experience to what you were just uh, speaking to. I'm the essential caregiver for my dad who is in a long-term care home in the late stages of Alzheimer's. In this pandemic, it has been absolutely terrifying to the responsibility of walking into that long-term care home to help him and, and knowing I need to keep my bubble as tight as I do in order to protect those other people, you know, it just gets to expand your mind and, and at a stress level, but also an appreciation level of those like yourself who are walking into those rooms, often of strangers, knowingly putting yourself at risk and helping them through this most difficult time. Uh, are there Are there any... Uh, words of wisdom that you could share, because more and more of us, doctor, are are one degree closer to having lost somebody to COVID nineteen or knowing somebody who has. Uh, in dealing with that, how how do how do you help your patients and their families deal when in the palliative care um, position in this life? Well, I mean, I I think um, you know, COVID nineteen has brought to light a, a lot of questions around people's lives and their mortality. And mm-hmm. more and more, I think one of the silver linings has been that we're talking more about um, ta- topics that are often um, noted to be taboo in our society, like death and dying, and particularly advanced care planning. And if I do have one piece of advice for people, um, is to consider, you know, their futures and and to consider con- completing a, a, an advanced care plan. Um, Speak Up Canada, if you just Google that, it's, there's provincial jurisdictions across Canada, um, and you can um, download a kit for yourself. And it, it seems like a morbid topic, but um, I've been there. I've, I've, I've been with people who haven't thought ahead and haven't thought about it, and how important an advanced care plan can really be. It can really, uh, it's, it's not just for yourself. You're doing it for your loved ones who, are, who would be in a difficult scenario, God forbid, if you were to become sick, for example. And so, I mean, I think that's one kind of um, uh, uh, pearl I can provide or a silver lining that's come out of this is that we're talking about, you know, palliative care and advanced care planning more than ever, uh, albeit under very tragic circumstances. What was that website that you mentioned there? Yeah, it's Speak Up Canada. And if you just Google that, it's the Speak Up campaign, which is uh, a, a national campaign around advanced care planning um, and uh, a really great toolkit, visuals videos, just so people who are thinking about their future, their advanced care plan, their living will, can start to plan ahead for their future, uh, what it's going to be like when they grow older, if they get sick, what their loved ones need to know, what you should talk to them about. These are all important pieces. It's interesting. It does give anxiety, though, even listening to it, because even, you know, doing a will, it feels like you're tempting the fates when, in fact, what you're doing is you're, you're giving yourself and your family complete and utter control when life feels completely out of control. Absolutely. I, I, I always tell the people that I care for who are, are early on in disease and I'm having these kinds of conversations with them. I say, you know, this is a pathway to providing a smooth process if this ever were to, to come to light and be an issue for you. And it's like a Band-Aid. Rip it off. Let's get through it. Work through it. And it will be much easier on the other side. 
Um, nobody likes to think about their, their end of life. And I think that's actually because we live in a death phobic society, which is a huge reason why I do the work I do. And, and, and for example, the TikToks I do, because like we talk a lot about birth, but we don't talk a lot about death or it mm-hmm. seems to be like a, a, a different mood when people bring up that topic. Um, so, so I, I think, I think, I think that's really where this, really centers for me is is thinking about advanced care planning as a as part of your toolkit to plan for the future. I love that. And we're going to leave that there, doctor. Thank you so <laughs> much for your time. If somebody does want to follow you on TikTok, do you have a handle? Yeah, it's at um dr doctor dot nahedd n a h e e d d. So at dr dot n a h e e d d. Okay, we will put that up with this link on our social media so we can share it with our loved ones of all ages so people can tap in on your wisdom. I appreciate you being open to discussing these difficult topics and doing so with uh, with such positivity. I think it's very important for all of us to realize, like you said, rip off that Band-Aid. We'll all spend a lot of time avoiding doing those those so necessary details for end of life, and yet when we get them done, feel exponentially better having that all put to a place where our family knows what our wishes are should we find ourselves in a position of not being able to say so out loud. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 